in, in Parker, good to see you again. In good to see some, you too. In some ways, uh, the teachings of the Buddha feel like that they're disjointed to Westerners. And because of that, they seem to think that there's got to be some gap to be filled in. This is, in fact, what I see a lot of in uh, what they call pragmatic Dhamma. That the, the basic point is, is that all oh, there's real gold here in the teachings of the Buddha. Unfortunately, it's been lost to humanity, but we'll figure it out and set humanity straight again. Mm-hmm. I see that as a common thread within what is called pragmatic Buddhism, and they don't recognize that uh, because none of them have been have spent 10, 20 years in Asia, that in Asia, what uh, the pragmatic Dhamma guys are looking for has not only been been found, it was never lost since the time of the Buddha. That's the remarkable part that I can say because I have lived in Thailand and been around the Thai people and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and and that, that I can say for sure, based upon direct observation, that what the pragmatic Dhamma crowd are looking for, they can find if they would come and stay at at places like uh, Dham Kiam and places like that, they will figure out that those places are missing. So let's look at them for just a bit. It would seem like that with the practice of Anapanasati that goes in the direction of the first thing is, is that we remove hindrances. The second thing by removing the hindrances, we're removing unwholesome thoughts and putting wholesome thoughts in intentionally gladdening the mind, which brings the, uh, uh, across the feelings. We're controlling the mind with the breath, controlling the mind with the, uh, uh, with the thoughts, and fairly soon we begin to fe- control the feelings. But this is always done right here in this present moment. That's the big deal. What's happening right here, right now? And yet, almost all of our identification would be from the past. If you took a physical inventory with the top of that, uh, instead of a to-do list, it's an I am list. Okay, who am I? And if we started answering that, um, we would number, number one point, we would go immediately into the past. Because in this present moment, There's not much of anything to define us. So the definition of who we are is almost always based upon the past in the sense of, well, today I went to court. Therefore, today I am a lawyer. Or today I drove the truck. Therefore, I am a truck driver, except in this particular moment, you're not a truck driver because you're not sitting behind the wheel of a truck and there's no truck in the room. And yet we say, I'm a truck driver, mm-hmm. which means that we're dealing in always in the past, trying to identify who we are now. But this leads then to the understanding that if we are in the present moment and unhindered by uh, the thoughts of the past and the future, that who we are becomes ill-defined. Or the definition is so complicated that by the time we got to the end of the definition, parts of that definition had already changed. Mm-hmm. And so we got to start over again. It almost begins to be an unending song. Yeah. A song that never ends. Because we're always in a state of flux. That's a remarkable point because we have been taught our whole lives of who we are. Defining who we are. Which means that basically uh, how we're defined is through our habits. That we act a certain way because we have acted that way in the past based upon stimulus in the past. So when that stimulus comes again, we do this 
same thing again we call this react mm -hmm. we react yeah. to yeah, the same yeah. stimulants that we reacted to before this reaction then is the definition of who we are is how we react to things mm -hmm. but if in fact we are awake and that we are making choices so that we do not have to follow the uh, the old habit patterns, then that choice means that now we can be almost anything to where the other one was an actual definition, that reaction defined who you were. Yeah. This is, in fact, the deeper kind of insight, rather than the insight into the nature of suffering, we're actually looking for insights into the nature of the self. Of who am I? And the answer is a moving target. Not only a moving target, but the target, it moves pretty fast. It's hard to see. Yeah. And we never hit it before. Yeah. And so that's actually becomes an irrelevant question, because when we try to define that question, the only way that we can define it is by going into the past. Yeah, but when we're in the present moment. Who I am is ill defined. Yeah, we're not worried about those old habits because we're we're here now and we can make our decision irrelevant of those habits. This then is the deep insight into the nature of the self that can be had only by doing this stuff in the present moment. This is why the ordinary mind that deals in hindrances and deals in the past continues to deal in the past. This is why beliefs about rebirth and reincarnation and that kind of stuff have snuck into the teachings of the Buddha. They snuck in in the minds of the people who were interested in hearing the teachings of the Buddha and didn't quite get it. Yeah. That in fact, if you don't mind, I'd like to read something that a student just sent me recently from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa that is on this particular topic that we're talking about. So um, the name of this work, and I'm only going to read a couple of three paragraphs out of it, but the name of it is A Handful of Fallen Leaves. Okay, now he's actually making a pun off of the Buddha's handful of leaves. But the Buddha's handful of leaves also were fallen leaves. They were not on the tree. So this handful of fallen leaves is actually indicating about the past anyway. It's sort of, he sneaks in that point. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so he starts off by saying, the Buddha refused to have any dealings with those things which don't lead to the extinction of dukkha. Take the question of whether or not there is rebirth. What is it that's reborn? How is it reborn? What is the comic inheritance? These questions are not aimed at the uh, extinction of dukkha. The, uh, that being so, they are not Buddhist teachings and are not connected with it. They do not lie in the sphere of Buddhism. Also, the one who asks about such matters has, has no choice but to indiscriminately believe the answers given because the one who answers is not going to be able to produce any proof, but is just going to speak according to that person's memory and feeling. The listener can't see for himself, and so he blindly believes the other person's words. Little by little, the matter strays from the Dhamma until it is something else altogether, unconnected, with the extinction of dukkha. Now, if one doesn't um, raise those sorts of problems, one can ask instead, is there dukkha? And how can dukkha be extinguished? 
to those questions the Buddha agreed to answer. And the listener could see the truth of every word in his answer without having to blindly believe him and to see more and more clearly until he understands. If one understands to the extent of being able to extinguish dukkha, then that is the ultimate understanding. One knows that even at this moment, there is no person living. One sees without doubt that there is no self or anything belonging to a self. There is just the feeling of I and mine arising due the foolishness whereby one is deluded by the beguiling nature of sense experience. There being no one born here, therefore there is no one who dies and is reborn. So the whole question of rebirth is utterly foolish and nothing to do with Buddhism at all. Buddhist teachings aim to inform us that there is no self and and nothing belonging to a self. There is only the false understanding of the ignorant mind. There is merely body, mind, which is nothing but a natural process. They function like a mechanism that can process and transform data, but they do not by the wrong method. But they do this by the wrong method. It gives the rise, uh, the rise to foolishness and delusion so that no that one feels there, there is a self and things which belong to the self. Oh, let's see. One sees without a doubt that there is no self or anything belonging to a self. There is just a feeling of I and mine arising due to the foolishness whenever there is deluded or beguiling nature of sense experience. <clears throat> so this is Dikka Buddha Dasa being. Hang on, things have gotten really busy. Tam? Sorry about that. Okay, so sorry about that interruption. Um, going back to this point. This is the actual practice of Anapanasati, and what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is pointing to here is this is the first fetter. The first fetter is personality view. We think that we actually exist because a body, a human body, a human mind exists, that there's got to be a human person in there someplace where the human person is nothing but the old patterns of the mind that when the patterns of the mind are new then whatever the person was defined as is now ill-defined mm -hmm. that's why the issue about be here now is so valuable and appropriate and important because that's what finally proves to us through our own observation that we are not the past. Yeah. If anything, we're the here now, what's happening right here, right now, but that is so complicated that it becomes ill-defined. Now that becomes really interesting when it comes to what we call one of the higher um, fetters, which is known as the fetter of conceit or manna. What manna or conceit is, is always has to do with comparing ourselves to others. Mm -hmm. But we never compare ourselves to others when that other is in this present moment and I am in this present moment. We can't do a comparison there. No. But what we do is instead we select criteria so that we can win. Anytime that we actually compare ourselves to someone, we almost always set up the criteria so that we win. 
an, an instance is, is that the student is arguing with the teachers, let us say even in high school, and the student walks away from that saying, well, he's just the teacher. So that's a new criteria that he threw in there, that he's a teacher and I'm a student, therefore I'm good and he's bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that means then that, well, wait a minute. When we were having that conversation, I was neither a student nor a teacher, and neither was he. We were just two humans. Yeah. Okay, so that means that all the criteria, the selection that we do for our comparisons one to another is always based upon the past, based upon uh, identity and personality. Always based upon that way. And so when we recognize that, we recognize that, oh, in a way, every time I compare myself to anyone, I always win because I'm smart enough to select the right criteria. Mm -hmm. And because I'm smart enough to select the right criteria, maybe if I were smarter, I would inspect this criteria to find out that the criteria that I'm using is also both number one in the past and number two, defining who we are so that we can make a comparison between he and I. Yeah. So by understanding this first better of um, this in this present moment, I am ill defined that I'm only defined by the past. Okay, because I'm only defined by the past, then whenever I'm comparing myself to someone, it's a lot of work. I've got to go select the criteria. I've got to make sure that I'm going to win this thing so I can only put in things like that. And it winds up when we're comparing ourselves to others or we want them to have an idea of us that's different than the idea that they have. We want to change their mind. That seems to be a lot of work because we're probably not going to change their mind anyway. Yeah. But in fact, the more we try to convince them how wonderful we are in comparison to them, the less they're going to buy that because they're selecting their own criteria. Yeah. And they're not about to take your criteria because no. <laughs> you use your criteria, then that would mean that you would win and they're not going to have that. I yeah. mean, everybody's got a self to defend, you see. <laughs> That's true. So if we begin to see that, then we recognize that conceit, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And the only option is dukkha. <laughs> that in fact is dukkha to do the comparisons. And, yeah. and we know the outcome anyway, and someone else is not going to like that comparison and the outcome. And so this is why we begin to understand why that is such a high fetter is because it's the subtle part. But right from the very beginning, we can see those parts in the sense that they're always in the past. So whenever you think of someone that you don't like, if you've got any enemies at all, recognize that you're holding them as an enemy because you remember something that happened in the past that defined mm -hmm. you and defined him in your mind now. Okay. But you don't even know what your enemy in this present moment that person has in his mind. Mm -hmm. So, this begins to destroy our relationships with others in the sense of comparisons and enemies and all of that kind of stuff and begins to take us towards friendship because friendship is always based in the here now. Mm -hmm. But enemies is always based upon what he did to me and I'm looking for revenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. This is where conceit comes in that really, really is the more dangerous kind, but just identifying as I am from the past is something that we begin to do early in our practice. This is the insights then that we're looking at 
that are different from the insights that many people think. They think that they, if you get a deep enough insight into dukkha, into the nature of dukkha, that you'll finish it. Okay. Now we can look at various places where this um, is is useful information in certain organizations. One of them, in fact, a, a really good one to look at is AA. And we look at AA simply because of all the alcoholic uh, treatment methods. AA tends to be the most successful. And so by looking at AA, we can see um, <clears throat> some of this stuff going on. Uh, and one of the things that they do in AA is they want you to start associating with new people and not associate with people that you were associating in the past. Because a drunk, if he's going to be not a drunk anymore, that means that he does not want to associate with drunks the way that he used to. Mm -hmm. Because they're going to invite him to come back into it. Uh, and so we want to uh, start changing our friendships. Uh, just like AA recommends, so that we have more wholesome friends in the present moment. Friends who are going to uh, receive you as friends rather than ex-enemies, those don't make good friends. No. And so not associating with the people that we've associated with the past and associating with new people in, in the present is a very, very good um, uh, practice method. Uh, this is why we're trying to get us uh, the Sangha going is so that people can associate with other Dhamma dudes rather than associate with, uh, let us say, the uh, emotional drunks sure. that we've been associating with. So when AA comes by and and starts looking at how relationships with people operate, we can begin to see then that we can apply that in a much more general way. That AA has just one particular job to do, and that is the cure of alcoholism. And surprisingly enough, uh, many people, when they uh, become alcoholics, they get even more miserable than they used to be. And so when they come out of the alcoholism, they're back up now to a normal level. If they would continue to apply the uh, parts that they had learned about the 12-step uh, program all the way and put it with everything, then they can improve their life in many ways. Uh, so the AA program really does, even though they don't harp on it, but they talk about this present moment. How are we going to handle the now mm -hmm. as opposed to how are we going to handle the now with all of the baggage that I'm carrying from the past? Yeah, <laughs> two different things, yeah. So this is what we mean then by personality view. This is the first fetter. Who am I? And that seems to be, well, if that's the first fetter, then why does the Buddha uh, say that questions about who am I what was I in the past and what will I be in the future? Why these questions are irrelevant and dangerous. Because if we define who we are now with what we were in the past, then we can make some big mistakes there. So the Buddha says that in fact, what is worthy of our attention is this present moment of what is dukkha, how to get rid of it, and the answer to that is this thought is dukkha and how do we get rid of it is by throwing this thought out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so this is the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa that I was reading to you is is talking about. And we can recognize then that um, that if the little bit of past just last week or last month is dangerous, then people who get involved with what happened hundreds of years ago or hundreds of years into the future are just going in the wrong direction. It is better to come closer and closer to this present moment. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, as Bhikkhu Buddhadasa uh, didn't say, uh, 
that all of that stuff is absolutely wrong. What he did say was, is that this is not the teaching of the Buddha. This is not liberation. There are many, many millions, even billions of people, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, all of them have concepts of heavens and hells and things like that, afterlives, long time ago, long times into the future. So this is an ordinary kind of thinking. None of those people who believe in rebirth are liberated from it. Only those who become liberated from it are those who recognize it is an irrelevant topic. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's true or not, it's that it's, re- it's not relevant. Whether yeah. it's true, if it's true, so what? If it's not true, so what? Mm-hmm. The same thing can be said about God. And in fact, um, let us tie something in that's very interesting. In the sense of does God exist or not is one of the primary questions. You'll see Christians and atheists just at each other tooth and thong trying to just and nobody's ever convinced. But also none of them ever take all of the different possibilities. You see, in any yes or no question, there are six possible answers. Not just two. In our mm-hmm. society, we think that things are either black or they're white. We do. But what is gray? Is gray black? Yeah. Is gray white? Yeah. All right. Is gray not black? Yeah. Is gray not white? All right. Yeah. So now we're beginning to see that there's more than one answer to the question of is it this or is it that because it can be both it could be a mixture of the two it could be neither one gray is not white gray is not black Mm -hmm. right but we can also say that gray is both black and white so these are four four answers already that we've developed is it black or is it white is not a yes or no question. It can be both or neither, but there's two other answers that are even more useful. And that fifth one is the real heart of the issue is I don't know if gray is white or black. Not sure. Yeah. Depends upon how much gray it is. Right now all we have is the word gray. And we may be talking about a, a novel author. <laughs> so, in this regard, um, we don't know the answer to it, but now let's look at the sixth answer, which is even more completion. And that is, is that the answer to it is irrelevant. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, for instance, we walk into the, into the room that's painted blue. And we ask the question, is this white or black? Yeah, that's an irrelevant question. Mm -hmm. All right, so now let's look at the question of God. Is an irrelevant question? Yeah, it's irrelevant because it um, the real question is dukkha or no dukkha. And the question of God doesn't answer that question. Yeah. Also, you can see that God and rebirth are the, in that same realm. Is is that uh, whether God exists or not is irrelevant to the question at hand, to the real issue. Whether or not rebirth is the question at hand or not. Now, there was a philosopher, his name was Nietzsche, who made the statement, God is dead and I am free. Very famous. Christians really, really rant about that one. But there's a point to it because you see one of the things that people would say is, is that, well, wait a minute. He really means God is dead, means that God does not exist. He didn't exist in the past and he didn't exist in the future. So we're really pointing out really when we say God is dead, that means that my association with God is dead. Or another way of saying it, that the dead means the past. 
So if God is dead, that means then the past is dead. So when Nietzsche is saying God is dead, he's actually saying all of my past beliefs and all of my stuff and who I was in relationship with God is dead now, and therefore I am free. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the uh, the more correct uh, response to the, uh, for that would be the past and all it contains with its gods, its myers, its brahmins, its stories, its rebirths, and all of that stuff is dead. Yeah. And all we have is this present moment. This is a way of, of um, understanding that is freedom. That all of that stuff is past, all of it is dead, all of my comparisons and all of my competitions mm-hmm. were fruitless. And therefore, I can let that stuff die away. Don't have to compete with people, can be their friends instead. Yeah. So, this is the basic teaching of the Buddha. And you can see how so many people bring beliefs about the past into their own personal practice. And that this is, in fact, what needs to be done is to, uh, instead of trying to fit in the Dhamma with everything that we already know, that we really need to just empty that vessel completely, forget about the past, become literally empty inside so that we can contain this present moment. Yeah. But when this present moment is gone, then everything is empty again. Okay, and so things arise and they pass away. We flitter away. Now, most people, when they practice, they practice um, something like choiceless awareness or the noting method without having the mind completely clear or free from the hindrances. When they do that, then that's when they become really expert at dukkha because they see so much of it. Mm-hmm. We're not going to become experts at Dukkha. We're going to only become expert enough to dance around it. We don't have to touch it. We don't have to dig into it. We don't have to step on it, squish it around, rub it on our face or anything. Do not have to inspect Dukkha. We only want to inspect it enough to know that this is Dukkha and it's to be avoided. So that makes the practice really easy. Because we can start asking ourselves every question about every thought. Is this a wholesome thought or not? Is this dukkha or not? For a long time, the students will lie to themselves and say, yes, this is okay. Junk thoughts are all right. Asking myself, this is, this is satisfaction, but it's not enough satisfaction. Now, is it? And we think of all of those kind of thoughts as wholesome. But when we recognize that, know that that's actually just trying to define ourselves in relationship to the past. An example of this would be, okay, you're experiencing sukha. You're experiencing a very, very good moment. Or let us just say a good moment. You just like this one. But when we start comparing it to something else, maybe a dream feeling, or maybe a feeling that happened in the past, now we're saying that this present feeling is not good enough. Mm-hmm. Actually, intentionally, ignorantly, but intentionally adding dukkha to this present moment, where in fact, whatever feeling of good we had is good enough. Mm-hmm. But when we start comparing it, when we start uh, uh uh, going into competition sometimes even with our past self. Then that comparison is a lot of work. It is. It's a lot of work to uh, uh, to be dissat- to work yourself into a, a state of satisfaction only to tell you, but it ain't satisfying enough. Yeah. That's not building the skill of satisfaction. Building the skill of satisfaction is being satisfied with the satisfaction we have now. That builds the skill of satisfaction. Because actually, if you think of it, satisfaction is not on a scale. That dukkha is on a scale. In other words, there are little problems and then there are big problems. 
The satisfaction mm-hmm. is just satisfaction. It's just yeah. There's no judging yeah. it. It's just it there's is. no judging it. There it is. You're just satisfied. But yeah. being dissatisfied, there's no end to how deep it, the dissatisfaction can go. <laughs> yeah. But when we come up to a level of satisfaction, what that means is that we're developing the skill to be in a state of satisfaction, no matter how much dukkha we would invite ourselves into piddling in. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's basically coming out of it. And so when we say then that this satisfaction is good, but it's not good enough, that's just adding dukkha. It is. The skills are to develop the satisfaction and sustain the dissatisfaction, not to make the satisfaction better. Better, right. Just to to get into satisfaction and then maintain that satisfaction, not trying to make it better. Trying to make it better, that's critical mind. Mm -hmm. But being satisfied, and (laughs) that's it. Being satisfied with how things are, that's nurturing. Yeah. And so this is why the Buddha's teaching is so valuable is because it come, it brings us out of this selfish dukkha into the present moment immediately. This is what the practice is. Guess what? That's all there is to the practice. It's not complicated. Yeah. But there are things that will happen. And uh, the, the one thing that we're talking about that happens is what this whole talk has been about, and that is, is by being in the present moment, we begin to uh, loosen our definition of who we are because our who we are is always based upon the past. That's mm-hmm. what defines us. That is what our, in fact, is our destiny. You've heard that word before, right? Yeah. Destiny, providence. Um predestination well guess what the people who talk about it are correct there is destiny there is predestination but we talk about it in a different language we call it habits that if you have this habit and you do this habit over and over and over again you are actually taking yourself into a path that can be considered a destiny sure An example of that would be he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. The swordsman's destiny is to get stabbed. Yeah. Guess what? A lot of swordsmen don't get stabbed. They die a natural death. Why is that? Because they laid down their sword and in old age, they're not a swordsman. And so they don't die by the sword. Only a swordsman dies by the sword. Mm -hmm. Because he stopped living by the sword. Because you stopped living by the sword. You're not dying by the sword. You're going to mm-hmm. die some other way. <laughs> you change the time of it. Yep. Right. So this is what destiny is all about. Now, they often speak of destiny also as free will. Or the opposite of destiny is free will. But neither one of the case. That, in fact, our destiny is the habits. And, that, and it takes some right effort to break those habits so that we can come and be in the here now, which now means that the individual is ill-defined. Which means now we have the will to do as we please, because we have the freedom to do it. Mm -hmm. But it never was free. The freedom was expensive. We had to put in the effort to come out of our destiny. So I call it not free will, I call it expensive will. (laughs) Yeah. There is no free will because nobody is just automatically free from their past. Yeah. We have to take the effort to free ourselves from the past and get into the present moment over and over again so that we can trust being in the present moment completely. And that is what then makes the past irrelevant which also makes who I am irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Because who I am is my destiny, which is what it was in the past. Now, the, the big part of it is, is that people don't recognize they've got a choice in this. Yeah. They have a choice. 
if we have no choice, then naturally it's going to be the destiny. In fact, that's why how they use that, the word destiny, predestination, providence, all of that. They use it in the sense that you've got no choice. And then they say then that the other opposite of that is free will, that you do have a choice. But then they think that free will means that you've got a choice about everything. But in fact, you don't. You only have a few choices. And the few choices that we have are only those choices left over after our destiny and our habit patterns have taken their lion's share. And so we don't have many choices left because we're uh, spending uh, most of our, um, let us say, freedom thoughts as hindered thoughts instead. So by practicing more and more often, practicing coming out of our destiny, coming out of our past, out of our habits, making the choice to be here now in this present moment is the, um, the freedom. So sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Sometimes sure. we're stuck in it, sometimes we're not. <laughs> when we begin to see that going back and forth, we can make even more choices. Hey, I'm not going to let myself do that. I'm going to stay on guard here. I'm going to bring that guarding into more and more times during the day. An example of that, you've heard of Murphy's Law. Yeah. Do you know what it, do you know the, the law? Yeah, everything will go wrong. Um, everything that can go wrong will go wrong at the worst possible time. That's the point. At the worst possible moment. That's exactly like sati. Sati is, um, uh, let us say that we are most unlikely to have sati at that point in time when we need it the most. Okay, like for instance, when we're sick, that's when we need sati the most. Because Buddha Dasa talks about that's a really good time to practice is when we're yeah. sick. Okay. Um, when um, we've lost a lot of money, that's a good time to practice. Mm-hmm. What are our choices? Be miserable all the money I lost, or the fact is that right now I'm not spending that money anyway. I guess I'm okay. And so this is the point about Murphy's Law is, is that um, things will go wrong at the worst possible time. And so things need to be engineered so they can handle the stress and not go wrong mm-hmm. at the worst possible moment. One of the old examples that I have from the old days is a hotel that has a thousand rooms, brand new hotel opens. They buy a brand new SPIF computer designed specifically to handle a thousand room hotel. When is that computer system most likely to fail? When it's pushed to a limit, if it's thousand when, rooms full. When, yeah. when, you, when you hotel is full, it's not going to fail on opening night. It's not going to fail yeah. uh, under normal conditions where they have 30 to 60% occupancy. No, it's going to wait until the convention where they're completely full up and that's when the computer fails. Mm-hmm. That's when your sati will fail, is when you need it the most. For a child, having mom or the teacher yelling at you, that's when people start to feel bad. They don't have the presence of mind to remember to be here now. Mm -hmm. They go off into the past. When a teacher is yelling at a student, the student thinks that it's the same old thing. And the teacher's thinking the same old thing. They're both in the past at that moment. The teacher thinks he's a teacher. The student thinks he's a student. And the, the, the reality of the moment is neither one of them are a teacher or a student. They're just two human beings. One yeah. is talking in a loud voice and the other one is feeling bad. All because of their habits. Mm-hmm. So... At that point in time, when things are really tough, like when our uh, our thousand room hotel is completely full, or when teacher is yelling at us, that's when we need to sati most. Another yeah. example is is that you're tooling down the highway and the cop comes up with the the lights and the siren. That's when we need sati. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
when he's when he's wrestling us to the ground and throwing handcuffs on us, that's when we need the sati. Then, in fact, if we had sati when he had turned his lights on, we probably wouldn't have gotten wrestled to the ground. It was only gotten wrestled to the ground because we had no sati. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's so important to develop the sati is because there's going to be times when you really need it. Yeah. And when you're going to be ready, for, and then that gains you the confidence that you can handle anything. So that you can then say, no matter what happens, no matter how many cops bang in the door, no matter how many pythons are on the floor, no matter how many alligators are in the bathtub, I can handle this. I can handle anything. Mm -hmm. That's the lion's attitude, is to yeah. get ourselves in this present moment, I can handle it. And we have that sati developed enough so that enough of those, uh, let us say, intense moments when we need a sati the most, that it was there for us. That gains confidence. Yeah. If I can practice when I am sick, if I can practice anapanasati when it's hard to breathe, then I know I'm successful at it. That's what gains that confidence. That's what uh, Sama Sankapa is all about, is to having that attitude that yeah. we can gain because we have actually had sati enough in those hard times. When Murphy has come and bit us in the butt and we turned around and smiled at him. <laughs> And so this is the way that we practice. We practice for this present moment, coming out of all of the competitions and worries and frustrations of the past into right now is okay. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine right now. That's so, that is such a surprise for so many people to recognize that, hey, right now everything's all right. Yeah. All of the times that I've ever been yelled at, was either in the past or in the future because nobody's yelling right now. Why can't I enjoy the fact that nobody's yelling at me right now? <laughs> so, in fact, this is an idea that we're looking at is in the sense of sunyata because the Buddha actually does recommend to not just look at what's there, but to begin to look at what's not there. <laughs> the dangers are not there. Make sure that you understand there's no alligators here. There's no crocodiles here. There's no snakes here. There's nobody yelling at me. Everything is okay. Sunyata, mm -hmm. everything is empty. Nobody's doing anything. And if I can get into that position and have that state of satisfaction right then and there, then when those tough moments come by, I've got the habit of satisfaction already built up. which is almost completely radically different way of uh, looking at it from the Western mentality of, oh, you need more and more. Whatever it is that you've got, you need more of it. Yeah. Rather than what you need now is already there. All we have to do is practice it to make it very solid. To keep mm -hmm. going. It's not and about it's, reading it's, more books, just practicing, having a sati develop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're reading a book, that's okay. Practice then, too. Yeah. As a, uh, There's a story in the Bible that says, whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy mind, all thy strength, and all thy might. Mm. Okay. That, I can't think of a uh, more poetic way of saying, be here now. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you're doing, whatever your hand, if your hand finds that book, whatever you're doing, even reading a book, you can do that directly. Get your eye into it. Get some skin in that game. Read what you're reading rather than think about what you're reading. Mm -hmm. You'll get a whole lot more out of stuff if you actually read it rather than think about what you're reading. Yeah. That's what we do. We miss the whole book sometimes because we're thinking about the first paragraph. And the eyes keep going down line after line after line after line, and we're not reading. We're thinking instead. 
So yeah. this is the way of waking up to constantly remember to wake up, to wake up. Look at what the mind is doing. Look at how we're breathing. Take control of the mind. Take control of the breathing. Yeah. So I want to also, as we finish up here, congratulate you for actually starting to practice correctly. You're getting good results. I can yeah. see. Thank you. So do you have anything to add? Any questions? No, I think that's great. This is great. All right. Well, Parker, as we finish off, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing on the YouTube site. Uh, I've had several people make comments. It's great to hear. One, one thing that I did see was, was that on one occasion you scheduled two things to come up at, at the, on the same day at the same time. I did, yeah. 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 And I and it would be better if we scheduled just one in advance rather than scheduling two or three in advance. That will help us not make those kind of mistakes. But no big deal anyway. Yeah. No big yeah, deal. Yeah, it was a um I just scheduled them both for the same date. Listen, you think you've made mistakes in the past? <laughs> Luckily, though, both of us are mistake-free in this present moment. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> so, thank you for your efforts. Getting a yeah. lot of good uh, vibes from it. You uh, uh, appreciate it. I just uh, with uh, communicating with uh, uh, Keyshawn, and then you called. Oh, really? Good to hear. Yeah. So that's some synchronicity. I was wondering, no, I don't wonder. <laughs> that was he just, did he just call you? So uh, I assume not. I assume that that's just serendipity. We were it's talking serendipity, about you. Yeah. Just, just two minutes before you rang. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, Parker. Well, it's really good to see you again. Yeah, good to see and you too. Keep going, keep practicing. Yeah, definitely. More satisfaction. This is good enough. Yeah. Awesome. Just just more of this. Just more in the sense of one more moment of it. One more moment. One more moment. Mm -hmm. We don't need 10 gallons and then 15 gallons of it. Whatever we've got, just one more minute of it. Just staying on the path, staying on the road, yeah. Staying, staying on it. All right. Great. We'll see you. Great. See you. Thank you. Been a great conversation.